is John chapter 17, and I'll be reading from the NIV. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might have eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. No announcements? Good? All done? All right, I'm free to go. Um, yes, because the past, past few chapters has mostly been Christ answering very short questions very fully, very theologically dense stuff, significant answers, and as a good preacher and teacher does... Christ prays at the end of his lesson, and we should probably pray at the start of this one. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you've provided us with your word, and we ask that you open it up to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. I like this chapter particularly because it looks hilarious in any red-letter Bible that you have. You get the first half of verse one, and after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and said, or and prayed, and then like 600 words in uninterrupted of Jesus praying and this huge chunk of red on the page. 
Thanks, red letter version. You really highlighted the salient points in that one. But as a rule, when we're reading a chapter and it starts with, after this, it serves us to go back and recall what this was. And what this was, in this case, was all the teaching from chapter 13 up till now. So I hope that's all fresh in your minds. This is everything from washing the disciples' feet through everything he taught to them during the Last Supper. Collectively, chapters 13 through 17 are sometimes called the Upper Room Discourses, or the Last Supper Discourses, or in one uh, particular commentary I was reading, the Supper Discourses, which is so light and fluffy, and I like it because it conjures up the image of Jesus explaining the mysteries of the universe to the disciples holding styrofoam cups of hot chocolate around a plate of Arnott's assorted biscuits. And Judas takes the last scotch finger. <laughs> but these chapters, which we've gone through over the last five weeks, are all in the same setting. They represent the last block of Jesus teaching his disciples before he prepares to die. Chapter 13, the last supper, washing of the feet, one of you will betray me. Chapter 14, I am the way, truth, and life. If you love me, I will send the Holy Spirit to help and guide you. Chapter 15, I am the true vine, abide in my love. Love one another, the world will hate you. Chapter 16, after all, all, that I, all that the Father has is mine, your sorrow will be turned to joy. I have overcome the world. And chapter 16 ends with the disciples saying, ah, now you're speaking clearly with no parables and no figurative sense. Now we can understand. We get it. We understand that you're really from God. Jesus tells them it's not over yet, that pretty soon they'll turn their backs on him in his hour of need anyway. But he won't be alone because the Father is with him. And at the end of chapter 16 and verse 33, Christ says, I have said these things to you so that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So what are these things that Jesus said? Explicitly he told them his nature as the only way that they can connect to God. He promised them the Holy Spirit would come and fortify them and bless us disciples, the followers of the disciples' footsteps when he's gone. And he warned them that the world would be hostile to them. But knowing all these things, knowing the love of Christ, knowing the truth of the Spirit, they have what it takes to live and die in a world that is hostile to them without losing faith. And with that, the great teacher has finished teaching his disciples. It is the end of his earthly ministry he began three years prior. Last chapter he finished teaching, next chapter he will be arrested, this chapter is all prayer. And at this critical moment in history, Jesus prays for himself, he prays for his disciples he's been with for so long, and he prays for you and I. While Jesus has stopped teaching at this point, the way he prays and the things he prays are revealing and instructive. Verses 1 through 5 feature Jesus praying to the Father for himself. Specifically, that he will be glorified. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. I have brought you glory on earth, now glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. Now, glory is one of these words that we use and read a lot in scripture and sometimes so often that our eyes kind of gloss over it. Our brains are so cool, they have this ability to not understand something, but then move on trusting it makes sense. You know that ACDC song, Thunderstruck? 
I spent 13 years of my life thinking that song was about a fungus drum. Yeah, 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 fungus drum. <laughs> What's a fungus drum? I don't know, I assumed it was a rock and roll thing. I used to watch the Transformers cartoon with a friend of mine. The catch line is, Transformers, robots in disguise. But every week during the show's opening, we'd sit up and say, Transformers, Oma CTI. <laughs> Oma CTI is not a word. What does it mean? I don't know. I presume it's a robot thing. It's not important. But the attributes of God are important. And if you've ever been tempted with a concept like glory or righteousness or holiness to say it's a God thing, I don't quite get it, but I can live without knowing, I encourage you to think about it again. This is the kind of thing we're meant to pursue and unravel and get to know better as we read more and more. And particularly, John uses the word glory a lot. It's very important to the picture of Christ he's painting. So without turning this entire evening into an extensive word study, when John talks about glory, he's talking about two things. Firstly, glory is weight, it's significance, it's gravity, it's recognition of greatness. And when we sing glory to God in the highest, we are giving him glory in the sense that we are recognizing and praising his power, his deeds, his centrality to the universe. When Jesus in verse four says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do, that's the kind of glory that he means. Christ's teaching on earth showed the disciples and then generations of Christians after that the nature and the grace of God. He gave the Father glory in that way. But glory also refers to that intense, perfect, unique power that comes from the presence of God. It's the glory that resided in the Ark of the Covenant and in the Holy of Holies in the temple when God chose to display his presence in those ways to his people. It's a true, wonderful thing about the nature of God. And when we are saluting him with our glorifying of him, that's what we are glorifying. God has capital G glory, and therefore we respond to it with little g glory to glorify him. So when Jesus says, glorify me, Father, in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began, he's saying, take me back to you in the heavens near to you where your glory comes from, where I come from. And that's an incredible claim. And the disciples, even now at that point in the scripture, have to be struggling to get the full implications of it. They claim to understand, but we know they'll abandon him in his time of need very shortly. And This claim that Jesus had the Father's glory before creation does not sit naturally with the Jewish belief in God's unapproachable oneness. Isaiah 42 verse eight reads, I am Yahweh, that is my name, I give my glory to no other. And yet Jesus is claiming not only does he share in that glory, that he had it before the creation of the world. Can you see how much of a profound impact this prayer had on the apostle John? When he sits down to record his gospel, how does he start? In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there in the beginning with God. All the things that were made were made through him. Nothing was made that was made without him. It's life-changing for him. No wonder that Jesus needed to die for people to believe it. 
because he needed to die and rise again for his closest disciples to internalize and believe what he was saying. This claim that he shares God's glory is life-changing if true and incredibly blasphemous if it was a lie. And all Christ's miracles he did while he performed his ministry on earth were impressive. But until he rose from the dead and showed that God loved him so much that he would reach into the grave to pull him out again, it was unbelievable. And this is where he makes that claim as clearly as he ever does. And the next four chapters will be how he proves it. That he and the Father are two persons, but cosmically, ultimately, they are both the one glorious triune God. So that's verses 1 through 5. Verse 6 through 19 shows Jesus praying about what he has done and what it means for the now 11 disciples with him. The prayer reveals the connection between the Father and the Son and the disciples. Verse 6 says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. The disciples followed Jesus because God gave them to him. He led them from their lives as fishermen and tax collectors and zealots to be disciples and beloved friends of the Son of God. Verse 10, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. Now despite the number of times that Christ had to rebuke them, correct them, teach them things they didn't know, remind them of their purpose, Christ treasures these 11 guys and says that they have given him glory. They have been, after all, going out among the people, healing and casting out demons in his name. They've been imperfectly but faithfully working very hard to bring the glory and recognition to Jesus that he needed. They've been instrumental in making him so well-known and so controversial that eventually someone will have to kill him for it. Verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So we've talked about glory. Now Christ is praying that his disciples will be one, as he and the Father are one. What does oneness mean? Obviously, both the Father and the Son are God, and if we're looking at the way that he and the Father are one, that triune nature is part of it, but the triune nature of God is something we marvel at, not something that we can replicate ourselves. The bonds of love and fellowship that tied the disciples together, however, that fraternity, that oneness of, of purpose and love for one another is modeled after the triune God, the love that the Father has for the Son. All I have is yours and all you have is mine so that they may be one as we are one. This is Jesus asking the Father to help the disciples execute the command he gave them back in chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. To be one is to love one another sacrificially, protectively. These men were being shepherded by Jesus and soon they will be the shepherds of the young church. They are about to become the first wave of God's new, inaugurated covenant of love to his people. And because of this, Jesus asked God to protect them by the power of his name. 
Protect them from what? Verse 15, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Now this could be translated the evil one, as in the work of the devil, or protection from evil, as in the temptation and wickedness of the world, but the net result is the same. This is a hostile world to those who are not willing to go along with its worldly flow. And especially for those people that Jesus is talking about in verse 16, they are not of the world even as I am not of it. No one can remain loving and faithful to God without the protection of God. Thus, as in the previous chapters, Christ has been promising that he will send the Holy Spirit as a helper, now he prays that they will be protected and sanctified, and the Holy Spirit is how we see that manifested. Verses 17 to 19, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, and as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, so that they too may be truly sanctified. Sanctify, another Christianese word. Some renditions will have consecrate instead of sanctify, but it's the same thing. And it's important we know what that's supposed to mean because if we didn't grow up in a church family with a church background, words like glorify and sanctify are nonsense. And so you need a Christian to translate. To sanctify something or consecrate it is to make something acceptable to God. It's to make something acceptable to God. And so Jesus prays that we are sanctified because he is sanctifying himself. And by that, the scripture means Jesus is making himself acceptable to God as a sin offering to atone for the sins of his disciples. And then as their sin is taken away, they are acceptable to God as sons. They are sanctified. Now through all of that, he has been speaking about his disciples specifically. That they should be one and that as in the same way that he and his father are one and that they should love one another and they must be sanctified and they are not of this world. But then in verse 20, Jesus points up out of the page at you and I, the readers, and across 2,000 years of expectation and praise for our sakes. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Normally, I'm not a fan of broad-spectrum prayers. I believe prayer is a function of our love, and I can't sincerely pray something like, Lord, please give everyone in the world good health and good times, because I don't have the capacity to know everyone in the world, let alone love them. I have a hard enough time loving some of the people I do know. And so specific prayer about those people and issues that the Spirit puts on my heart seems to be the way to go. But Jesus is better than me. He's better than all of us. And he prays here for all those who will believe in him. Jesus actually loved the world and everyone in it. He truly was God and he had access to God's foreknowledge of things to come. Do you suppose that as the Son of God prayed for those who would believe in him, he prayed for the general abstract church to come, as a human might be limited to, or perhaps that your face, individual and known and given to Jesus by the Father, flashed in his mind as he prayed those words. 
I pray for all those who will believe in me through the disciples' message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. I have given them the glory, the weight, the significance, the gravity of history that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. That oneness, that glory is given to us. The Father is in Jesus as part of the Trinity, and once saved, Jesus is in you by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every believer. And if you have the same Holy Spirit in you as I have in me, and there is only one Holy Spirit, then if we are sensitive to the word of God, then he'll sanctify us, as it said in verse 17, and we can't help but have that unity of purpose, that unity of love for God and for one another. And that unity is destined to result in verse 23. Then the world will know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is super important. It's the answer to one of the most asked questions in Christian apologetics. Can I be a Christian without going to church? Answer, yes, in the same way that you can make a plane that never once takes off. Or a lion can live in captivity without ever once chasing down a gazelle on the savannah. Or you can be part of a cricket team and never show up to a single game, bowl a single ball, swing the bat, and still have your name on the roster. Yes, a person can be Christian and decline to belong to a Christian community of believers. But it is in defiance of God's word, and it's an incredibly sad defeat of the purpose of Christian life on earth. The most powerful weapon that we have for advancing the gospel is the way that God uses a loving and faithful church. We are commanded individually to be loving and charitable to the poor and needy, irrespective of whether or not they have faith. But it is how we treat each other, how Christians treat Christians, that legitimizes the claims that we make about Jesus Christ. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. The world is not impressed by the good things we do for the poor and the needy. Some of the poor and needy might be impressed, but overwhelmingly we cannot bribe people with material things into the kingdom of God. Because any material gift, any material relief, anything we can give to someone outside the faith they can get from anyone There's no medicine, no food, no monetary sum that atheists or Hare Krishnas or government agencies cannot offer just as well or better than we can. It can't be the gift that is given that is responded to. It has to be the people giving it that is responded to. Because the only thing that we have that no one else in the world has is the unity that comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit, living sanctified and being changed. That's all we have to offer. There's this heartbreaking phenomena associated with faith rallies in the last 30 years. They're getting a little better in the last 10, but there's been a terrible focus on individual faith statements instead of community 
and that's incredibly destructive when isolated like that. You'll have a rally with a great band and a great speaker, and people who have never known the Lord will come, and they'll be in a crowd with hundreds or thousands who are listening to the same songs and hearing the same speaker, and they'll be so excited to be there. And the speaker will say something like, if you want to give your life to Jesus tonight, come down the front and we'll pray. And these people will respond because they feel something and it feels good to be in a place with a bunch of people sharing something. And they'll come down the front and they're led through the sinner's prayer. Lord, I ask you to come into my heart and forgive my sins. Amen. Great. Pack it up. We've got three more cities on this tour. Let's go. And then the community that these people responded to is gone. Turns into smoke. A month later, half those people who made a confession of faith before God barely remember what it was about. The lucky ones trickle down into faith communities by the grace of God, but most decide that it was just a weird, fun experience and don't give it much more thought. The truth is that no one is saved when they say the right words. They're saved when they genuinely respond to the conviction of sin in their heart and they confess Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. That might happen at a rally, that might happen at home while reading the Bible, that might happen after 40 years of sitting in church and the pieces finally click into place. By the grace of God in all cases. But Jesus prayed that we would be one with him in us and the Father in him. And that oneness is something people desperately crave. Everyone, every human being lives in this world in the tension between belonging and being an individual. It's how we're built, and too much of either, and we self-destruct. Actors, rock stars, high-end celebrities, people who have more individuality than anyone else in the world, often end up feeling like they can't connect with anyone, and no one understands them. And if they don't end up getting swept into religious crazes or cults like Kabbalah for Madonna and Britney Spears and Scientology for Tom Cruise, they run the risk of being part of a very large suicide statistic in that bracket of people. On the other end of the spectrum, much closer to home for most of us, poor and middle-class people who work a normal job and feel like their life is going nowhere, who feel like they're just like everyone else, who don't feel appreciated as an individual or like they really matter, also have an astonishingly high suicide rate. It's the most common cause of death for Australians between the age of 15 and 44 overtook skin cancer and car crashes. Humans are desperate for authentic community. And there's no doubt in my mind that the Holy Spirit moves in groups of people when they get together to pray, praise God. But I'm afraid that sometimes folks aren't responding to that spirit but the sense of communal joy that exists in those places and lots of others. Why would anyone, for example, pay $300 for a One Direction concert ticket. If they could spend $16 on iTunes and download the album and listen to it whenever they like forever. It's because there's something about being there with all the people singing the same songs, with the same fascination. Why would you ever go to see Macbeth performed live on stage when you could buy the DVD? Or you could get Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. It's Macbeth with samurais, superior in all ways. It's the community factor. It's being there with people doing this and sharing an experience. It's watching your favorite movie with someone who is watching it for the first time and staring at the side of their head to see if they react at the right times. 
It's like wearing a Collingwood beanie from the safety of your couch and never touching a football and saying nonetheless that we are going to win. It's a group of teenagers all wearing black with a thousand piercings so that they can feel individual in the street where people look at them like they're weird, but then a community when they come together. When we receive forgiveness from God, we receive that individually. We get individual forgiveness from God, assurance that God loves us, that he made us, that he has plans for us individually. And with that, an invitation to a community that spans every continent across 2,000 years, united by not a uniform or a hobby, but a common individual indwelling of the Holy Spirit. By the power of God, we, the church, in our best times, do authentic community better than anyone. More lasting than a rock concert, more intense than any club membership. More fulfilling than any group assembled for any purpose. In our worst times, we have a responsibility to get back to the best times. Jesus does not command his followers to love one another just because he doesn't fancy the idea of them fighting. And the New Testament isn't saturated with injunctions to not hold grudges and to sort out conflicts with one another as a matter of policy or housekeeping. When we fracture as the people of God, we create flaws and tensions in the community of God's people. We damage and weaken God's chosen instrument to reach the world. I'm enormously grateful for this church because this church has always been that best community for me. You've supported me through the last three years of Bible college. I like to brag to people about this church. I'm very proud that I can serve in the capacity I can here. I have the luxury of not being at odds with anyone in this church or outside it as far as I can tell. But if you have an outstanding conflict with another believer here or somewhere else, I encourage you to take another shot at resolving it. Jesus commands us to love one another and prayed that we would be one. If you do everything in your strength to love your brothers and sisters here, you're not just being obedient. You are being God's answer to his prayer. And if you're here tonight with us and you don't know Jesus Christ, and we've never confessed him to be your Lord and Savior, we would love to be the community to support you through discovering who God is and knowing that Jesus is the only way to God. You can talk to me or anyone else here at the end of the night. We'd love to meet you. Jesus finishes his prayer the way he started it, speaking about the glory he had before creation, but with a new addition. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. If we are serious as individuals about wanting to be as we are commanded, God's hands and feet in this world, then we must love one another. 
so much that we are one as an authentic community. It's how we show that we have changed. It's how Jesus makes the Father known to the world. It's how the gospel goes out, and it's how we give glory to God. Jesus has done so much for us. Let's try to be the answer to his prayer for a change. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for Jesus, that he died and rose again to give you glory and to give us the glory you'd given him. We ask you to sanctify us through your word. We ask you to make us one. We ask that by that unity, the world will know that you sent Jesus and the Jesus we speak of, and that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Protect us from the evil one. And keep in our hearts always the knowledge that one day you will draw us up into the glory of your Son, which he had before the creation of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.